Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. Miyako Perry utilizes a systems thinking approach to assist individuals, community groups, and organizations in creating more inclusive cultures. Her decade-long career as a transformational change agent includes national and international facilitation with nonprofit, corporate, and government agencies. Nyako is the founder of Yin Consulting, a collaborative based on personal, organizational, and systemic healing. She is the organization development partner at the much-anticipated Comfort Kitchen, a restaurant, community meeting space, and a food incubator dedicated to fostering collaboration, cross-cultural understanding, and community engagement. Nyako also serves as a member of the advisory board for the Action Boston Community Development, Inc., Roxbury, North Dorchester Opportunity Center. Nyako holds an MS in organization development with distinction from American University. She is also a professional level yoga teacher, an Afroflow yoga certified teacher, and weaves her mindfulness expertise into her consulting work. Too many organizations have unhealthy organizational cultures. This can stem from many things, including any traumas that people are bringing with them to work that then impacts how they treat those around them. This has particular impact when it's the leader. Often as a new person in the environment, you can feel it. There's a tension you can sense, but may not know the origin. Niako and I talk about what organizational healing is, why it can be messy and why it's so important. We look at why asking people how they really are at the beginning of a meeting can be a radical act in some organizational cultures. In considering how change happens, we examine why it is less a thing to manage and more a process to shape and move through. Why tending to transitions is so important and how too frequently the leadership of nonprofit organizations fail to represent the people who are doing the work on the ground or the people the organization serves. Welcome, Niako. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Carol. I'm excited to be here. So first, just to give people some context, uh, what drew you to the work that you do? What would you say is kind of the journey or the, the path that got you to where you are now? Oh, goodness. Well, that is quite the question. Um, so just for background, I do mostly organizational healing. So I'm interested in the well-being of people at work um, and, and ultimately doing a process of healing. So addressing and um, having accountability around some of the past experiences and really making a path forward so that people can feel safe and be the most productive people they can be at work. Um, what brought me to that is quite a journey. Uh, I come actually, and I think you know this, Carol, I come from a yoga background to start. Um, so I was very invested in healing in that regard, healing for myself um, and just first for taking care of myself, taking care of my body and my mind. And um, that became quickly into how do I facilitate this for other people. And so I've been a yoga teacher for several years. Um, and after being a yoga teacher for several years, I left and became a Peace Corps volunteer in Botswana for two years. And that experience was the most eye-opening, incredible experience of my life, both 
exciting and awesome, but also painful and different. And through that experience, I was essentially working with a lot of government agencies. So I was based in a local village and there were three local schools that I was supporting with what we would consider life skills, which was mostly around the spread of HIV and making sure that the curriculum invested in that and um, making sure that the students understood what HIV was and how it was transmitted and so forth. And through that experience, I found that one, I fell in love with my community for sure. Um, and I also got rather disillusioned from um, some of the institutions that were located there, both you know the, the nonprofits as well as some of the government agencies I was working with, unfortunately, of just how their approach was, which was ultimately um, numbers, very numbers based, very centric towards you know what are we doing and how is this making us look good? And that really didn't resonate with me. And so I had a big kind of internal process going on because ultimately I felt like actually there's so much potential to do really powerful work if you are in collaboration with the community, if you are really acknowledging how they want to go about their own process of, of doing this powerful change within their system. And so I became very interested in that, um, both during my Peace Corps service, but then afterwards, of course. Um, so after that time of being with them, I thought, okay, I actually more so than actually doing direct service, I'm very interested in the systems that hold this direct service. And so um, that's where I started and looked into the American program that I believe we both did, Carol. And then, um, yeah, through that of going through the master's program became very interested in how do I bring back this healing component and this idea around um, people's well-being at work. And so all of these different parts of my identity and my experience came together through uh, the master's program. And I actually had the pleasure of really thinking about a theory around organizational healing from the lens of the chakra system. And the chakra system is basically energy centers that live within the body. They're, you know, they're known in yogic philosophy. They're also known in African practices and traditions as well. And so I was very interested in if we are considering organizations to be human systems, then how do we apply all of these theories we have about the human experience in the context of work? So that's how I got into all of, all of the things that I got into. That's awesome. So say more about organizational theory of healing and that, that theory. How do you define that? And can you dig into a little bit more about how the theory then shows up when you're doing work with groups? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I'm a very feeling person. Um, so the first thing that I do when I go into an organizational system is I'm like, what do I feel? You know, what, what do I feel inside? Do I feel tension? Do I feel joy? Do I feel apprehension? Um, and so I very much come from an emotional place and a healing. That's what I consider healing is just being in touch to the emotions. Um, but healing takes many, many shapes and forms. So from my perspective, it's really about accountability. I think that's where healing can truly come through. So if an organization gets data that says, you know, actually you have been unfair or you have done some things that have caused harm, acknowledging that and really making that be part of the next strategy. So we've heard you, we're going to make shifts, we're going to acknowledge what we've done that has caused harm, 
we're going to actually make some shifts and involve you in that change process. So that's what I consider to be healing. Um, but what I've noticed through the work is that, you know, obviously every organization will bring about healing in their own way. And for some people, um, healing can be kind of messy. It can be, it can be tough. You know, it's where the leader, for example, has to really take in all of the feedback. And sometimes that within itself is like, ah, like that hurts, or I had no intention of doing that. And I think this is something that happens all the time where the leader has a very different experience from those that are on the lower levels of the system. And they're not very connected to, you know, I didn't realize that me making this pay cut and making this particular shift had an actual emotional effect on your life and your ability to come to work and to thrive. I didn't realize that. So there's a lot of, yeah, just kind of acknowledging what's gone wrong. Um, but it can, it can honestly be a, a messy process. <laughs> um, so I've found. Um, but I think for me, it's really about how do we create a safe container where people can be honest. And that is usually the first step in a system. A lot of times when I go in, it's very clear to me that nobody's going to really say how they feel because there's such a tension, there's such a tightness. Um, and so I kind of, I open the floodgates, but then the floodgates are open and who knows what could happen, <laughs> but usually it ends up pretty well, but. <laughs> Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by creating a container? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, even in how I practice, so if I'm leading a group, the first thing I do is a check-in. And for some systems, that's very normal behavior, you know, checking in, how is everybody? And when we're checking in, we're not just checking in on how was work today, but how are you? Um, and from a facilitator perspective, I wanna understand if somebody is coming in already with stress, um, with some tension, with some things, that's gonna influence how they're showing up here. Um, so that gives me more of a background of what's going on. Um, so one thing is check-ins, um, which for some systems is kind of radical of transforming where people are like, wait, you're asking me how I am <laughs> versus, you know, what, uh, how productive I was today. It's like, it can be a little bit of like almost jarring shift. Um, and so I think that's kind of the first step for me in terms of setting a container is starting with, of course, the check-in but also in how I'm holding the space. So I'm someone, you know, I, I'm not intending to be an authority when I hold space, which for some people is difficult because they're like, just tell me what to do. And also like, you know, when you, this is what I consider to be presence. You know, you're kind of a boss and you come in and you tell us how to do things. And I come in with a kind of radical, uh, different way, which is, hi, I'm here. I'm interested in how you feel. I want to support you in this process. I'm not an authority. Um, I hope you feel safe here. And so that's kind of how I show up. And that really opens where people are like, oh, whoa, like I can talk to her, especially when it comes down to the data collection process. I tend to do very well in that area because people feel more comfortable just on how I show up and how I hold space. Um, with that, like I was saying, there is this other extreme where for some people they're like, I don't get it. Like, why isn't she doing it how I'm used to seeing? Um, not to mention, I also just look like what I don't always look like what people consider a consultant. They're like, oh, wow, you're young and black and have all these other parts of your identity that I'm not sure about. Uh, how do I make sense of you? 
But I think that's also a strength that I have that people, yeah, I just, I look different. I represent something different. I show up differently intentionally. Um, and that helps to set a container for people to feel safe. And you talked about the messiness of the process. I think, you know, too often people are lulled into the idea that, you know, if they do this seven step process, um, you know, we're going to manage change. It's going to happen exactly the way we want it to. And, um, I, you know, I, I often even cringe when I hear the word change management because yeah. it just, to me, creates this illusion that it, that it is all manageable. And I mean, certainly you, you yeah. create processes to help people move through it, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be always easy. Uh, there might be uncomfortable parts. Um, but those are necessary if you're really going to dig into the, the real issues that an organization's facing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes me think a lot about uh, Bridges' theory of just that in-between from when you're trying to mitigate the change process. And it's like you actually have to consider that there's this in-between from what you were to what you're going to be. And that middle space is going to determine whether or not you're actually successful. And you need to, you need to work on that and think about, you know, how are my employees actually taking and feeling throughout this change process? Especially for those that are like, oh, we just let go of half of our staff and we're merging with a totally different company and we have to completely change our culture. We have two cultures that are somehow supposed to merge together. It's like, that's, messy there's going to be so much messiness and even just acknowledging that and kind of holding space for that in between i think is so so necessary yeah and the, that theory that you uh, mentioned uh, william bridges uh, does a lot of work on transitions and when i'm kind of trying to explain that to people i often say that in our american kind of white dominated culture we you know we always want to be on to the next thing and so we want to we want to go from point a point C and forget this in-between confusing yeah. uncertain uh, space where we're, we're kind of betwixt in between and not quite there not quite here not, you know not where we were but not quite there yet and I mean I think everyone's feeling that right now in the midst of the pandemic we're in this just massive yeah. in-between space and just the discomfort Ooh. that that creates with folks mm -hmm. yeah it's just quite eye-opening you know I think for all of us and I think even um, organizations and how they respond to the pandemic. And it seems like there has to be more attention to the employee experience outside of just how they are in terms of productivity. But how are they? <laughs> yeah, and you talk about how radical that can be to, to ask you know, folks how they're doing. I was uh, talked to a colleague who at the, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, and she said, my boss is suddenly incredibly vulnerable, and I don't know if I like it. Yeah. <laughs> this is very not normal. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and many believe that, I would say that the, I don't know, if, if they're not in the sector, um, they kind of have this idealistic notion of the nonprofit sector that it's kind of shielded from dysfunctional culture and dynamics because of the mission focus and because of kind of that good intention and in, in trying uh, to create create change or, or good work in the world but uh, in my experience too many organizations um, have very admirable missions for change that they want to see and yet the values that undergird those missions just don't show up necessarily inside the organization and how they're treating people yeah what, what have you observed within nonprofits that you've worked with mm-hmm 
uh, yeah, a lot of that, <laughs> what you <laughs> described. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, more often than not, you know, it, what I'm seeing anyway is the people that are doing the really direct service um, are having a, a real challenging time, versus, um, especially around their income. Uh, more often than not, they're the least paid person, but they're the people that are really dealing with the direct work. Um, and then there's a whole disconnect between the direct service people and the people that are really high up. Um, and the other disconnect in that area is like race. <laughs> race is something I see very quickly. It's like direct service. That's where all the people of color work. And then as you go up, it's just all white. And that to me, like, I think symbolically, I find disturbing. I'm like, what is that about? And then also in terms of who they serve, more often than not, it's people of color, um, people that at least represent a disenfranchised identity. And that's not reflected in the leadership of nonprofits. And so for me, there's just this huge disparity and disconnect that I don't understand. And I feel troubled by. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it certainly mirrors our wider society. So it's not like the sector at all is yeah. kind of separate or above or it's all within all of those systems. So can you say more about how you see that culture of white supremacy showing up within the sector? Yeah. I mean, it's just this idea of helping, you know, this idea of helping. Who do we think needs help? And more often than not, the people who need help are people that represent disenfranchised identities. And why is it that we don't have those that represent those identities in leadership? I mean, that's where I see there's just a huge problem in that. Um, but I mean, honestly, my friends that are in nonprofit, when I've worked in nonprofit, it's just, it's almost like it's normalized where, yeah, the whole board is white. The whole leadership is white. Um, they don't know what's happening. Like they're not connected to the actual experience of the people that they're serving, but they get to make the most important, most drastic decisions. And, you know, fundamentally for me, it's the people that are closest to the pain should be closest to the access and closest to helping to make decisions. And I'm kind of pulling from um, my Congresswoman, Ayanna Presley. But, you know, that's the thing. We need to, people who are representing that identity should be part of the solution and should be part of making those major decisions. And I don't see that. I rarely see that. And I think we know statistically it's not there. It's like at all. I think it's like 0.05%. Yeah, I don't know the exact stats, but I definitely know uh, I can look some up in terms of, um, you know, what, what, Board Source has done a lot of work on this and the, uh, you know, and, and measuring and calling for more diversity and it, the, not, the needle not shifting, you know, since they've been measuring it basically for the last 15, 20 years or so. I mean, do you see places where, you know, that isn't the case where, you know, those dynamics are, are flipped? Um, I mean, probably occasionally. Um, <laughs> but I think also, you know, it's also our structures. Right, like our structures in general in terms of business um, are based on white supremacy. I mean, all the way from our educational systems, our business structures. You guys read, I was listening to the 1619 Project. I don't know if you've listened to that. It's an amazing, yet. yeah, amazing piece by the New York Times um, that really looks into our history of slavery, 
and also just the legacy of slavery. And one major piece is that a lot of our business structures are based on how the plantations were run. Um, they had very complex systems. They had middle management and you know ideas about productivity and reports about productivity of how to best feed a slave and have them be as efficient as possible. And we're extremely successful in that. Um, so much of our wealth in America is based on that piece of our, of our history and our life. So when I think about just structures in general, I'm like, yeah, like the whole thing, everything, um, which does make it difficult, I guess, to just live in society and to work um, in any system. And that's, I guess, the rationale that I give myself is that I'm here to dismantle and to support in the transition and the change. But I think it's very important to just acknowledge, like, where do our structures come from? Um, where do our nonprofit structures come from? You know, if these parts of our communities were not disenfranchised, we wouldn't have a use for nonprofit. And so how is this an industrial complex? How is it that, you know, we're dependent on people being in need and perpetuating that? So. And then the sector being dependent on the little bit of wealth that is put into foundations and then the little bit that they give out each year and where did all that money originate from? Yeah. And yet here we are in a uh, field in terms of organization development that wants to be of service and wants to help. Um, Where do you see, you know, how how do you see um, doing that in a way that does heal rather than doing harm? Yeah. I mean, step one is acknowledgement. And for some reason, (laughs) I mean, I guess I know why, but that's like the trickiest part. (laughs) That's the part where, you know, for example, when George Floyd was murdered, so many organizations, you know, wrote these very blanketed responses and there's no, and there was no accountability in the statement. There was nowhere where we want to acknowledge what role we have played in perpetuating this system. And here are the steps that we want to make to dismantle it, Um, to make some shifts within our organization. It's rare that we see that. I mean, we have seen it in some circumstances, but more often than not, it's just like there's a resistance to even acknowledging it. It's almost like, la, 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 la. Like, we're good. (laughs) We're doing good when really it's like, just name it. Name it and start there. I think that's step one. And then once that's open, involving everyone in your organization in the process. So knowing that more often than not, the leadership is not fully aware of all that goes on in the organization, is not fully connected to the people that are being served, really lifting up the voices from the rest of the organization, as well as lifting up the voices of people that are being served by the organization and bringing those voices to the forefront and allowing them to help direct whatever change process you're planning to make. I think that's the healing and that's the first step in healing. So you also work in the food industry as a partner with uh, Comfort Kitchen. What type of change are you trying to make in that space? Yes. Um, So first of all, background background on Comfort Kitchen, and I know they're going to read a little bit, but um, my husband has been in the food industry for, or I should say my spouse, has been in the industry for the last 15 years. Um, He is also an immigrant from Nepal, and he had a terrible time of basically, you know, being someone that has an MBA who was fully prepared to bring all of his skills to 
whatever business he was working for and just being constantly demoralized, disrespected throughout the process. And this is something, this is not a different story. This is the story. The story is that the industry is interested in exploiting people and chooses to target the most vulnerable individuals. So, you know, 70% of restaurant workers are immigrants. Um, and then a large portion of that are undocumented. So it's really vulnerable people that end up working there. And because of that, there's a lot of systems that will choose to exploit that. But with that as well, uh, as we talk about structures, just the whole design of the restaurant industry makes no sense. Um, it's not actually sustainable. And that's why when we saw the pandemic hit, most restaurants cannot go two, two weeks, let alone months, without generating any revenue. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And that's because the margins are small, because it's almost impossible to get healthy food that comes from a sustainable source to pay your employees well and actually sell your food at a fair price to your consumer. That has not happened. That's rare to see. Um, and so for us, we would like to try and see if we can build something that is a little bit more sustainable on many levels, you know, the financial element, but also in how we engage with each other and how we engage with the community. Um, so we're going into a community that I love called Upham's Corner. It's right up the street from where I live and have lived for many years. And it's a community that has a lot of life. It has a lot of diversity. It's actually one of the most diverse neighborhoods in America. So there's such a need to bring some love and be like, hey, we're here. We want to engage with you. And also with that comes the incredible cultures that are represented. So within my team, my partner is from Nepal. Our head chef is from uh, Ghana. Um, his partner is from Portugal. And then we have a teammate from Ethiopia and then second generation Nigerian. So we're bringing a lot of different cultures to share. And then with that, we're within a neighborhood that's incredibly diverse as well. And so a big focus for us is cross-cultural understanding. So how do we start to see that actually all of these experiences are valuable, important, and also have some similarities, you know, and one big similarity that we're finding is spices. You know, there's this huge, and that's because of colonialization and the spice trade, but um, you will find a lot of similar, you know, spice profiles across the world. And so that feels unifying to us and really what is the forefront for us in terms of our menu and in terms of what we talk about. So what we're trying to do, we're trying to do it all. <laughs> we're trying to shift it all. But ultimately we, you know, because of the pandemic, huge shifts had to make. And one bigger, big major part of that is that we are developing a much smaller team. And that's so that we can be sustainable and do things differently. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So on each episode, I play a, a little game where I just ask uh, one random icebreaker question. Okay. So I've got one for you here. What's the best compliment you've ever received? 
oh, I think, well, it was, last night I had a friend over and she said that I'm very smart and in a smart in a way that most people don't understand, but she gets it and she sees it. She's like, you're so smart. For me, I have really struggled with my intelligence just because I have a learning difference. Um, and so I've gotten messages throughout my life that, oh, you're like not as smart as other people or you have, you know, whatever, which are all stories, but when you're young can be very much embedded in the way that you think. And so I love to receive compliments around my intelligence. That feels really good. Thanks for asking. Absolutely. And without a doubt, without a doubt, incredibly insightful, smart, intelligent, delightful. Thank you very much. So what are you excited about? What's coming up next? What's emerging in your, your work, your world? Yeah. Um, I mean, my consulting work is going well, especially because I think people are aware they need to tap into their emotions and address some of these past harms and make some transitions. So definitely feeling busy in that regard, which feels really good. But also, uh, we have a project coming <laughs> called All In Consulting. I know you've probably mentioned it in other, um, in the other times that you've had people on, but I'm very excited about that. This idea of having a collaborative of people that are committed to doing specifically DEI differently, diversity, equity, inclusion differently. That to me, I feel like I'm at home in our, in our network, in our community. So that is very, very exciting to me. And then, yeah, Comfort Kitchen is coming. We have a ways to go, but 2021, probably um, around March, April is when we're thinking. So just plugging away on that as well. And excited because I'm going to take my first vacation next week. So awesome. look forward to that. Yeah. That is part of personal organizational well-being that people take time off mm -hmm. and prioritize that and really unplug. I'm, I'm a big believer, I guess, maybe because I grew up in Europe. Um, I'm used to longer vacations, and I think that's yes. the way to go. Yes. This American idea that you can get away with as little time off as possible is uh, just not living. It doesn't work. It, just it doesn't work. I'm here to work. tell you. <laughs> yeah. And it's not fun. So. So how can people find out uh, more about you and get in touch? So you can check out my website at yinconsulting.com. That's Y-I-N consulting.com. Um, you can also learn about Comfort Kitchen. We're comfortkitchenbos at gmail.com. And then if you are an Instagram person, comfortkitchenbos is our, um, our name on Insta. So you can check us out there as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you on. Of course. Thank you. It was awesome. In our conversation, Nyako mentions Bridges. William Bridges wrote a couple books on transitions. He started by examining the experience of an individual going through a major life transition, uh, starting with his own experience. And then he applied his theory and findings to organizational transitions. In our very action-oriented American culture, we tend to see transitions as a before and an after, an ending and a beginning. Yet with this perspective, we leave out a crucial piece, the confusing middle that you have to go move through. Anthropologists call this a liminal space. Bridges calls it a neutral zone, a space in between, 
Many people want to skip over this messy and oftentimes confusing part. It is very normal for people to have a variety of widely shifting emotions as they go through a transition, from excitement and anticipation about a new beginning, to fear and anxiety, and then back to innovation and learning, and then into ambivalence and confusion, and so on. We're living in that in-between space right now with the pandemic. While people are talking about the new normal, we may be in new, but I don't know that we're in normal yet. So we'll have to just keep muddling through that messy piece. Niako also mentions the 1619 Project, a podcast by the New York Times by Nicole Hannah-Jones. After we recorded the interview, I listened to it. In addition to the points that Miyako makes about how the legacy of slavery is embedded in our current economic systems, I was struck by how intertwined the financial systems of the day were in the slave trade. So as a white person, I do not know what my ancestors' involvement was directly in the trade of human beings, but I can be pretty sure that their money was invested in some way whether they knew it or not, given the British banks' involvement in the trade, even after slavery was abolished in England. Which makes me think about my own financial resources and where they sit within institutions and which institutions and what those institutions are doing with my resources. One of the things on my to-do list is to look at that more carefully and move my financial resources to community banking and other progressive financial institutions that are not as fully involved and invested in the harm being done to people in our planet today. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's Mission Impact Podcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out.